0: Hello and welcome to the We Are Guernsey podcast where we bring you interviews with leaders from the global finance industry as well as news and developments from Guernsey's financial services sector. My name is Brandon Ashplant and I'm strategy and technical executive here at We Are Guernsey. For those not familiar with Guernsey, the island is a leading global finance centre. The success of the industry here is underpinned by economic substance political stability and asset security, and we are committed to the cause of sustainable finance. To find more about uh, Guernsey's success in sustainable finance, tune into our sister podcast, the Guernsey Green Finance Podcast. Today, we are discussing the strengthening of cybersecurity in an uncertain world, a world that sees global security increasingly under threat. We will be touching on the current crisis in Ukraine, the dangers it could bring to cyberspace and how firms should not only be contingency planning for such an eventuality, but are taking steps to prevent one. Uh, to discuss this, I am delighted to be joined by Rob Doré. Chief Executive Officer of Astara, a global marine insurance services provider and a specialist in cyber insurance based here in Guernsey. So firstly, welcome Rob. Thank you very much, Brandon. An
1: absolute pleasure to, uh, to share some of our experience with you today. Brilliant.
0: Um, so Rob, firstly, just to introduce you to our listeners. Just tell us a bit about yourself, uh, your career, and and why you chose Guernsey to establish uh, Astara. Uh, With pleasure. Uh, So I started life, uh, I
1: read law at university, I focused particularly on maritime and international law, and I was called to the bar uh, of England and Wales. Um, I didn't particularly enjoy that. I found that I was uh, too far removed from the subject matter that most interested me, and in that was uh, shipping and uh, how to solve problems once they uh, arose, for example, oil pollution or wreck removal or such events. Um, so I joined the Standard P&I Club uh, as a claims uh, executive to begin with. I then was moved into underwriting, dealing with uh, the club's uh, Italian and Greek membership. Uh, Before then moving to be the offshore director dealing with upstream oil and gas mobile units, so drillers, uh, offshore producers, offshore construction vessels, and the type. Uh, That then led me into uh, developing a Lloyd's plan for the standard Club to diversify into Lloyd's. Uh, I was then appointed as active underwriter for Lloyd's Syndicate, handling or was a portfolio managing uh, 14 classes of business by the time uh, we, we. Uh, decided to close the business. Um, On closing the business, I decided that I had had enough commuting on the Northern Line in London, and I thought, actually, this would be a good opportunity, actually, to come back home to Guernsey and to contribute, um, I think, to a vibrant uh, community uh, within the financial services market. So um, that led to Stara being uh, conceived um, in and around August 2019 and initiating our first Uh, Inception of um, our first client in July of last year. Um, So the question is uh, why Guernsey? Well, I'm born and bred uh, in Guernsey. um, And actually, I think that I can contribute to the strength of Guernsey's offering in the financial services market. And um, I'm very pleased to be able to have the opportunity to do that. And what is Astara? Uh, Could you tell us a bit about the work you do? Of course. Um, so, stara actually is the Persian name for the Greek word astrolabe, which was the first navigation instrument used by navigators uh, in around about two to three hundred BC uh, to uh, establish a location on the Earth's uh, surface by reference to celestial bodies and uh, and the like. So, it predates the sextant. Uh, interestingly, the mathematics that uh, were invented or discovered by the Greeks are still the mathematics that put satellites into orbits, and we thought there was a nice sort of circularity with the old and the new in, in the worlds of uh, old-fashioned navigation and new uh, GPS and geolocation um, techniques. So uh, Stara is, in fact, an answer to three questions um, that I put to sample in the maritime community a number of years ago. Uh, those questions were, do you buy cyber insurance? Um If you do, do you understand what it covers? And do you also understand what cyber risks and and standards you need to meet as part of your regulatory obligations? Out of the 29 of the sample that I interviewed, um, 15 bought cyber, 14 did not, but none of the respondents could understand what cyber cover uh, offered. And none of the uh, sample were able to describe what cyber standards they were uh, required to undertake. uh, And that might even lead them to be insurable as a risk uh, in the future. So actually, what we do is we have three strands to our business. We risk manage our target uh, clients, i.e. we take them from a position of cyber immaturity and take them to a position of cyber maturity. Uh, If they are sufficiently robust as a cyber risk management proposition, then we have the opportunity to underwrite them with an MGA uh, that's currently based in London. All of the activities that we undertake generate significant amounts of data. So we do have a data analytics uh, division, again, which is based in Guernsey, um, which we are seeking to expand and monetize um, later on this year.
0: Okay. Uh, So getting straight into it, um, it's been said a lot over the last two years that we are living in uncertain times, um, but in geopolitical terms, we really are now, I I think it's it's fair to say. We have heard from political analysts and the like that the post-Cold War world order that has prevailed since the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991 is now being challenged more than ever. Uh, can you explain how this impacts the work you're doing?
1: Yes, I think um, if I I've just step back, uh, just one point from that, i.e., which are, uh, there are essentially three key drivers affecting the cyber world at the moment. Uh, I think one of them is increased digitization, i.e., the more connected we become, uh, the higher the risks uh, exist in terms of the cyber domain and its reach. And that's been fast forwarded by covid as we know um, remote working and more reliance on digital platforms creates a larger footprint uh, and in this particular context i uh, the domain between home and the work environment um, and particularly for us um, as a sort of second point uh, the interface between operational technology and information technology is making uh, particularly shipping but other industrial processes um, particularly Risky uh, in terms of uh, exposure to physical damage arising from cyber incidents. So, that's uh, digitization is a major driver to cyber risk profile. I think uh, the second point I'd say is regulations. Um, Regulations um, have been applied by obviously the Guernsey Financial Services Commission uh, for financial services uh, companies within Guernsey. Um, Those requirements, regulations mean that all firms have to undertake to identify risks, to be able to uh, protect their digital network, they'll be able to detect when there is a claim, the cyber incident rather, then they need to be able to respond to that and restore their systems basically to normal operation as soon as practical. So the... position of regulations is really a very significant driver for people taking risk seriously. And all of these regulations are really in response to point number three uh, in terms of drivers affecting the cyber world. And that is the, say, the global impact of cyber incidents over the last 10 years, which according to uh, some American research has cost uh, trillions of economic loss to the global economy over that period of time. And these cyber attacks uh, range from uh, teenagers that are good with a laptop um, to those that are looking to fund crime through cyber extortion, and then sort of more seriously, those uh, cyber incidents that are uh, designed to generate uh, funding for terrorist groups, and then the most severe probably then being these state-sponsored attacks, which generally focus on disrupting supply chains, but more often or not are actually focused on theft of intelligence or intellectual property. So there's a there's a broad range of factors really which um, affect the cyber world in particular. I think the the thing that the post or the the, the post um, Soviet Union environment hasn't really been a a factor in its own right, other than a significant amount of. Uh, cyber incidents over the years have emanated from uh, the Russian Federation. Um, I think the only sort of comment that I would then add to that as a supplement is that everybody does need to know, listening to this, that all these risks are capable of management, actually, and that is a fundamental element of each company's ability to be able to survive a cyber incident and to be able to continue to, um, continue to trade after they've been hit. Um, so I think the I think in summary, um, regulatory standards are very much there to support the targeted industries um, to make them a little bit more resilient and to make them be, be able to be able to withstand a cyber event and thus improve the uh, the reputation and standing actually of of the sectors um, uh, in the in the world environment.
0: And I suppose on the back of that, um, given the many. Uh, you know, factors at play here. Some may struggle to see the relevancy of the current crisis and its impact on the corporate world more specifically. How has your work changed in the recent weeks or, or even days as a result of this uh, unfolding crisis?
1: Well, the I think the linkage between, say, Ukraine and businesses in the United Kingdom, and more specifically, say, the Bailiwick of Guernsey, it's really what is known as the drive-by shooting event, i.e. it's the proliferation of a cyber incident uh, beyond the borders of the theatre of where that attack actually took place. And there is some precedence for this. Uh, in 2017, uh, the Russian government, and this is as uh, attributed by the... Um, National Cybersecurity Center in the United Kingdom, uh, secreted malware into the Ukrainian Revenue Ministry, such that um, a person loading cargo into the back of a truck-trailer combination just outside of Kyiv actually went to a local customs station, paid the duties, downloaded a PDF, and sent that PDF to Copenhagen to the head office of AP uh, AP Muller Maersk Shipping Corporation. Um, Within 14 minutes of opening the PDF, 22,000 computers globally shut down. And that led to a very significant um, delay to the supply chain. Ships were uh, trading slower. Ports were not able to identify the cargo that was to be loaded onto ships or discharged from ships. Um, But more importantly, it didn't only hit AP Muller. It hit uh, some very, very large companies, Mondelez, who make Tobarone. Uh, Merck, who was a pharmaceutical company in North America, and it was estimated that the non-Petya claim in 2017 caused up to $10 of economic damage globally. And actually, none of those companies were the actual intended target of uh, the Russian um, intrusion into the Ukrainian uh, Revenue Ministry. But it just goes to demonstrate that actually the digital connections that uh, we all make through email or through services that we buy um, all become vectors for vulnerabilities in a, in a cyber incident, and we don't always know where those boundaries start and stop. So that is is undoubtedly the significant risk, I think, really for the, the global commercial community at the moment.
0: So clearly you are concerned that um, this escalation could transform into a global confrontation in cyberspace, by the sounds of things, and possibly directly between, I don't know, the world's major powers in a worst-case scenario. Cyber warfare is not new, and and we have heard much in the news media in the last few years of attacks against critical infrastructure and the spread of misinformation. Can you tell us how this crisis could look if it spread into cyberspace in sort of a worst-case scenario? I've discussed this
1: with my cyber... Uh, professional colleagues uh, within Astara, I think they feel that there's unlikely to be a global cyber war, uh, as, as I think we might imagine that to be. Uh, in practice, war as an act uh, is about the confiscation, expropriation, nationalization, deprivi- deprivation of property or territory belonging to uh, another state, typically. Um, and that does tend to require you know, physical force to achieve that. Um, cyber is very much a tool that can help degrade infrastructure to enhance the physical effects of a, uh, a war. And I think what we would be concerned about is that um, if the Ukrainian resistance remains as strong, uh, Russia will need to deploy greater and more significant resources, which will almost certainly require more cyber um, attack to uh, support ground operations. And as a result, um, I think we could see that there is a proliferation of uh, cyber consequences to uh, an increase in activity in Ukraine. I mean, I had mentioned non Um, Another example recently was the Colonial Pipeline event on the East Coast of the United States. Essentially, a pipeline was rendered inoperable, uh, causing fuel shortages up and down the East Coast, and uh, very nearly um, some civil unrest. Um, And I think the point around that is that it's very easy for local events to go global very quickly. And and really, that is um, the issue that we all face.
0: I mean, cyber attacks and hacks have taken place um, between nation states and state axes, as you alluded to to earlier, um, but much more as you say, for, as, as a tool to, as a means to an end, if you like. But there is a genu- genuine business risk involved too um, from nation states as well as individual attackers against organisations, as, as you mentioned. Could you tell us a bit more about the risks posed to businesses more specifically?
1: Yes, so these events um, have demonstrated that poor patching um, so, in the case of non-patcher, if people were operating, uh, for example, Windows 10 rather than Windows 7, if you were operating Windows 10, you would not have been vulnerable to the non-patcher event. If you were operating Windows 7 or earlier, you were vulnerable to the non-patcher event. Um, so, the patching and the use of up-to-date security technology is is fundamental to that. Um, I think there is a significant risk of ransomware uh, that arises to this. So uh, if your business systems or your, your IT systems are seized, either they're no, no longer operable, you may get a, a demand uh, for money to rein- uh, as a cost of reinstating a system. I mean, that has a cost in of itself. Is capable of insurance. Um, But there are very, very, very strict conditions about the circumstances in which ransomware can be paid. But actually, the real costs for a company are, how much does it cost to reinstate systems that have been compromised? In 2017, the average cost of reconfiguring a computer that had been contaminated, if I use that expression, was around about $4,500 per computer. Um, It'd be fair to say there's been some inflation since then. Uh, how long does it take to restore your system from an off-site backup? Is this leading to your um, losing customers or being unable to generate income because the platform by which you operate is no longer working that gives you um, revenue? So there are very, very practical um, consequences to these events, not least of all, um, on the more sophisticated uh, state-sponsored events, if they are looking to take intellectual property and/or client information, uh, the consequences of GDPR breaches are very, very significant—up to four percent of global turnover. Uh, on top of all the additional costs that uh, a company may be faced with in responding to a cyber incident, so um, it is—it is an expensive activity. Um, the Average global cost of a transport-related cyber claim is estimated to be around about three point nine million dollars per event, and that's not including a ransomware cost. Um, it's a little bit more for financial services, um, and a little bit, and it's even more for healthcare and uh, defense industries. So there is a sort of sliding scale of exposure in that respect.
0: And I imagine uh, that much of this is not mutually exclusive in the sense that much critical infrastructure is often in the hands of private sector uh, firms uh, in many cases. To give an example, you gave some earlier, but just to give another, just before the military invasion, we've seen uh, several Ukrainian ministries and state banks reported cyber attacks against them and also private firms that they contract with, which is... Particularly concerning when more than 100 Fortune 500 companies use Ukrainian ITV, uh, sorry, IT service providers. Turning to the crisis we see today, could you explain what you are seeing, and have you seen a similar situation unfold?
1: Uh, we are certainly aware of media reports of cyber events underway in Ukraine, although they appear to be of a lower scale event than say the non petcha um in 2017 at the current time um, i mean cybersecurity professionals regard the non event um, and you might have heard of solar winds which was uh, when malware was secreted into a subcontractor of solar winds which was an i.t service um, provider particularly to security uh, companies um they They, the attackers, actually went in to the supplier of services to these IT companies or these IT services, Uh, and actually the Colonial Pipeline as well are all viewed as dry runs for more targeted, more damaging events, i.e. the Russian Federation is using those events to test the technology and vulnerability of their potential victims, Um, and it's fair to say if they can disable Ukrainian tech and you are are a company that uses Ukrainian tech, you would need to take very significant attention um, to what are the consequences of that service or provision of services not being available or actually potentially being a a vector of a cyber incident in your own company. Um, And actually it's not limited to Ukrainian tech firms, far from it, Um, is anybody with whom you have particular dependencies for the operation of your business. Uh, I think, actually, um, it's fundamental to reflect, actually, that this reinforces the need for all firms to spend as much time and effort on restoration planning, running drills, desktop exercises, training, segregating systems, segregating uh, backups. Um so that you can put your yourself in a position where you can come back and restore your business after it's fallen down to an event that maybe not has uh, or has not been anticipated before, something that is um, referred to within cyber industry as a zero day attack like It's the first time that a particular vulnerability has been exploited using particular techniques that have um, been unknown to the cyber world before. so you can't prevent all attacks but you certainly can respond to all of them with the right kind of management response.
0: Now, of course, we definitely don't want to compromise any of your clients or prospective client security, but what have you seen in the last few days and what have your clients seen in the last few days? Um, I, I think uh, it's a, a very broad range of
1: questions. Um, I would say probably the more common question is, how can we evidence the level of maturity that we are currently operating at in our own cyber um, journey? Um, the evidence, of course, is fundamental demonstrating to company stakeholders, you know, be it clients, employees, the board, shareholders, that, um, that the executive management is discharging its duties as required by law. Uh, I think alongside that, we certainly would see that there has been uh, an uptake in related cyber services. For example, increase in pen testing, people trying to find out where the soft spots are within their cyber defenses. Um, and also probably an uptick in the number of inquiries about um, testing people's business continuity planning. I think that's those are probably the biggest thematic uh, questions we've received
0: sure and and again not to compromise client security but what measures have you been taking yourselves but also what have you been advising your clients to to do more specifically um themselves
1: well we've we've issued um to around 800 firms uh, around the world um some guidance um that we feel um, is prudent for all companies to undertake it. So it doesn't matter whether you're a shipping company, a port, an offshore contractor, a trust company or a bank, um, or even in private individual, actually. Um, the key is to make sure that patching is up to date. Um, patch more frequently than perhaps your company policy would uh, otherwise um, mandate. Um, test your Backups, um, implement multi-factor authentication. All these things are just making it a little bit more difficult for somebody to break through uh, your internet or your your internet um, uh, perimeter. Um, I think we would also advise larger, more complex companies that have, say, digital trading platforms that it might be prudent to downgrade. Um, those platforms in favour of enhanced um, security. Now, that's not for everybody, um, but it, that might be for a, a couple of particularly large companies that actually online trading might might be safer if the usability of those services is um, is locked down a fraction. So, again, all of this is about making sure that it's more difficult to be hit um, in in the event of a cyber incident. Um, and they should, in all cases, test offsite backups, test how well you can restore your system from your cloud or from an offsite server. Um, because actually, it's only when you test these things that you understand whether or not they actually work. And the whole point of demonstrating to your key stakeholders that you're on top of the situation is that you can evidence that you have tested these things. So, a lot of it is very much common sense. A lot of it is um, what we would call the easier um, cyber activities. It's probably worth observing that nearly 90% of all cyber incidents are derived derived through human error. So it's people not doing things that they were meant to be doing or people pressing on attachments which they know to be suspicious but do it anyway, Um, those attachments Um, which are suspicious, almost certainly have some kind of malware embedded in them, which is triggered when they are opened. And this is essentially allowing uh, assailants or cyber assailants into your business in a very easy way. So actually, the easiest and most um, significant improvements that you can derive are all around leadership, culture and training. Um, Remember that people are the most important uh, in your business. And they're also your first line of defence as well. Interesting.
0: Um, Something we often talk about on this podcast is the stability and security that Guernsey offers, uh, just as the islands continued operating business as usual during the COVID pandemic. Uh, We see this continuing throughout this crisis, I think. Uh, How do you think local finance firms, sort of irrespective of the sector that they operate in, should be reacting to this situation that we are seeing unfold?
1: Um, Take the advice that's offered,
0: is is, is what I
1: would simply say in response to that. Um, uh, I mean, the, the cheapest thing you can do is a desktop exercise. And that really is the kind of thing that would give leaders of businesses assurance that the, the culture is at the right level and that um, uh, that everybody's really uh, primed to operate in a defensive posture when it comes to IT security at the, at the current time. Uh, again, it's the people that are the most important thing.
0: And. It might be a similar sort of answer, but what advice would you give to managing directors and chief executives who are concerned about this situation or similar situations uh, to this one?
1: I would say make sure you have got your business continuity plan really well embedded within your company. So know what to do and who to call when things go wrong. Uh, Have that network of support primed um, on the basis that at some point you will fall over and you need to know what you're going to do when
0: it happens. And what happens if a cyber attack has occurred or or a firm thinks that a breach has has taken place? Um, I think it's identify uh,
1: with your managed service provider or your IT team um, where this Incident has occurred, and as soon as possible, isolate it and prevent it from uh, proliferating within your digital domain. Um, Call your incident responders as identified in your insurance policy if you buy insurance. Otherwise, uh, identify a cyber professional and their services and bring them in. Um, And alongside all of that, implement your business continuity plan because, in the end, if you have um, sort of pre-planned all these playbooks around cyber risk scenarios. You should be well positioned actually to respond well. Um, it's probably worth saying that the stronger your incident response within the first three hours, the greater the saving of cost and the less uh, likelihood of delay to your business operations. So timely involvement uh, and implementation of your BCP, I think, is is key. Uh, If money is exfiltrated or thought to have been exfiltrated um, from your business, get in touch with your bank as soon as possible. Every second does count. The banking system does have the ability to identify um, suspicious payments. However, you can't rely on the banking system to do that job for you. It's very much um, critical that they know that there is a suspicious payment out there, and then they can uh, take more focused um, steps to make sure that that money doesn't get into the wrong hands.
0: And turning back to sort of Astara and and the work that you do, how important is cyber insurance as part of your business risk assessment? And and what should people be looking for in a in a cyber insurance policy?
1: Um, well, to, to quickly deal with your your first question, I mean, cyber insurance is only possible if there is a risk management discipline within a company, uh, i.e., that the identify, detect, protect, respond, recover framework is living and breathing and culturally embedded within a company. Um, so, cyber insurance is a consequence of good cyber risk management or cyber or actually enterprise risk management is just one of the things that all firms have to engage in. Um, in terms of what people should be looking for in a cyber insurance policy, um, with the very high likelihood that uh, a claim, a cyber incident in the next days or potentially months is likely to be um, a collateral damage from what's going on in Ukraine. Um, you should be asking your broker, are war risks or terror risks included in my insurance policy, my cyber insurance policy? Um, There is a big difference between cyber insurance policies that cover terror in particularly, i.e. the acts of state-sponsored activities, and, um, and those that do not. And a lot of people don't trust cyber insurance because actually a lot of cyber insurance policies don't cover uh, the terror element, which is state-sponsored um, cyber incidents. Um, it is notoriously difficult to attribute um, causation to a cyber incident. I attribution is the where did it come from and what was the motive. Um, you normally need uh, state security service capability to identify where uh, cyber incidents uh originated. Um we certainly have experience of um shipping companies that have been the subject of a state sponsored attack um and actually have received um and essentially they were actually the, the claim was attributed to the Chinese military um intelligence building in Shanghai uh to two particular terminals um and interestingly, in that particular case, that meant that the claim under their insurance policy was not payable because they didn't have the right kind of insurance cover. So it really is important that the, if you're going to buy cyber insurance, you buy the right policy and you test with your broker that it is adequate for the purposes that you require.
0: Your company also looks specifically at cyber risk for the marine industry. You have touched on some examples yep. of shipping. Uh, and the marine industry more, more, more broadly. This is pretty niche and unexplored in many ways, I think. Uh, what are some of the key cyber risks for the marine industry?
1: Uh, in, in essence, it's a regulatory requirement of shipping to uh, engage in cyber risk management standards, not wholly dissimilar to those that apply to financial firms in Guernsey. Um, And what that means is that if a ship goes into the United States, for example, and it's uh, a port state inspector goes on board and they find that passwords are taped to laptop screens, uh, then that will initiate a deep dive into the cybersecurity profile of that owner. And in a worst-case scenario, that could lead to the expulsion of a ship from the United States jurisdiction. Um, It is certainly uh, the case that the Maritime uh, Coast Guard Agency in the UK and the European Coast Guard are taking a similar approach to um, to cyber uh, on board ships. You, nobody is prepared to accept ship coming into their jurisdiction and being the originator of a cyber incident across the maritime um, infrastructure of, of, of that particular country. So uh, I think that's one issue. It's um, I think the second thing is, cyber is now woven into the definition of seaworthiness so what that means is that it's part of a ship's ticket to trade around the world and that it can have implications on the operation of insurance so if a ship is unseaworthy you may find that the traditional ship owner's insurances may not respond because it's a warranty under those policies Uh, I think thirdly, practically, a cyber incident is likely to cause delay to a ship trading. There are 18 crew, by and large, on ships. These are big commercial ships. And they're not likely to give up the operation of their ship just because a cyber incident is going on, i.e., they lose confidence that the rudder angle monitor is giving the right answer. Um, Equally, um, that perhaps the GPS may not be giving the right location. Um, but then all ship owners should be using alternative methods of navigation, probably charts, uh, using clocks, which are not um, vulnerable to digital interference, and they should be in a position where they can uh, manage the safe navigation of a ship um, without relying on, on digital systems. So resilience is a very key part of all of that, but delay, I think ships would slow down if they felt that they had to um, or that they felt that their position was uncertain or that the engine revs were, say, running too high. Um, and it just makes each ship a little bit vulnerable to uh, degraded resilience, because if they got to deploy two or three crew members to look at other systems manually when they will normally rely on them digitally, then that means there's a little less resilience to do, deal with other things that go wrong on board a ship. So I think those are the principal risks. Um, nobody seriously believes that it's possible to take over a ship uh, remotely Um, it is spectacularly difficult to do that and statistically nearly
0: impossible okay well thanks for your time today it's been really interesting a really interesting chat uh just before we finish we understand that you've been doing some research into the current crisis what are some of the key findings that have stood out for you
1: Yeah, we've, uh, over a a period of um, a year, we've been undertaking vulnerability assessments on a sample of financial firms uh, in Guernsey, the Cayman Islands, and Malta. Um, Of course, Guernsey implemented cyber regulations uh, on the 9th, I think it was the 9th of November last year. And um, pleasingly, um, Guernsey seems to be doing quite well in reducing the number of critical vulnerabilities that These firms have, and it is quite clear that people have been taking those cyber rules and regulations quite seriously. Um, It compares favorably to Cayman, which have been implementing cyber laws uh, at least a year earlier than Guernsey did. He seemed to be a little bit further behind, uh, and both those jurisdictions were some way in advance of of Malta, actually, which um, has yet to legislate for these things. So I think it's a good news story for Guernsey, and um, and, a, and a well done to the Guernsey financial services sector for, for taking these things seriously. Clearly, there is always more work to be done. Uh, nobody's perfect, and the the ongoing uh, need to of continuous improvement is no less important in cyber as it is for any other element of an operation of a financial services business. Okay, well, thanks, Rob, for your time today. An absolute pleasure, Brandon, and thank you, We Are Guernsey, for the opportunity uh, to share some of our experience.
0: Yeah, it was a really fascinating and, and timely, I think, discussion. Uh, thanks for sharing your advice to businesses looking to bolster their, their cyber security. And thanks also to you for listening. If you enjoyed this discussion, we have a backlog of interviews and panel discussions on the We Are Guernsey podcast channel. You can check them out by searching for We Are Guernsey on your preferred podcast platform. To find out more about Guernsey and its specialist financial services sector, head over to our website at weareguernsey.com. We also have links to Rob and Astara's social media in our show notes, so check these out to hear more from them. I would also like to end this podcast by stating our heartfelt sympathy goes to those caught in the conflict in Ukraine. Guernsey Finance is fully engaged and aligned with the states of Guernsey and the Guernsey Financial Services Commission on on its stance in relation to the current situation. Guernsey also continues to be a major proponent in the fight against money laundering and is an international leader in the provision of material substance. The island is working closely with UK and other international authorities to ensure we remain at the forefront of global standards and a force for global good. Thank you for listening and for now it's goodbye from Guernsey.